Greetings, my friends, and welcome to the Paula Gordon Show, conversations with people at the leading edge. I'm Paula. Businesses and their politicians have argued for years that environmentalism is bad for business. Greenwash has been the token response. Industrialist Ray Anderson says that's nonsense, that working with nature is a competitive advantage, and he has the numbers to prove it. The figure that's, that, uh, that I uh, focus on is the throughput of the industrial system. I'm talking about not, not talking about my plant, but the whole ball of wax, the whole industrial system. The throughput, the metabolism, if you will, of the industrial system, only about 3% of that throughput has any value six months later. Three? 3%. Your laptop computer, for example, weighs, what, seven, eight, nine pounds? Mm-hmm. Probably 40,000 pounds of stuff was processed to distill you know, your seven, eight, or nine pounds uh, of working parts. <clears throat> so you've left 99.9% of the stuff, you know, in a waste pile somewhere. Tailings at the mine, energy that went out the smokestack, uh, in a zillion places, there's waste in the system. Um, so when you look, at, you look at where we are, that's the starting place. It ought to be really very, very easy to cut that waste in half. That looks like opportunity every patch of turn. It's all expensive. I mean, this, it's all this, money. This is... Yeah, it's money and it's pollution and it's 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 bad in every respect. And yet, our, our system somehow says, well, that's normal. Well, it's very abnormal if you stop and think about it. Who would want to run a waste-making machine? That costs mm. you money. <laughs> yeah, it's weird that we would, you know, that we would accept anything like that. Ray Anderson is the founder and chairman of Interface, the world's largest manufacturer of modular carpet. He has also written Confessions of a Radical Industrialist. For more than 15 years, he and his company have been climbing Mount Sustainability. Contrary to traditional economic theory, he says there are billions of dollars laying around unclaimed because business people refuse to break out of their rut and cooperate with nature. This isn't theory for Ray Anderson. He has the company to prove it. Bill Russell and I talked with Ray Anderson when he first embarked on his journey. We were pleased to get an update. Ray Anderson, I am often approached by people who say, well, you know, what you do might matter, but I can't do anything, and what I do doesn't matter, and what can one person do? And yeah, people like Ray Anderson, they, you know, they, they're big, a big company. But I, well, reading Confessions of a Radical Industrialist, <clears throat> excuse me, one person asked one person, I'm just a customer, but what's Interface doing? One person gave her mom a book who gave it to you. One person led a company. Isn't that some of the overall lesson of this whole Mount Sustainability, mm-hmm. the big picture? Isn't this every one of us has to do yeah. something? The power of one. Yeah. In one and one and one and one. I can't count that high. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know that you have now told the Fear in the chest story at least 1,500 times in speeches and things. Doesn't that stay fresh with you every day that you wake up to think about these things? Isn't that still a real well, driving the point of, force? The point of the spear is, uh, is, a, is still a fresh 
sensation and it's still there. Can you see? <laughs> spreading the spreading in the chest. Yeah. And yeah. the spear is to more than your heart. The spear is really to the planet, isn't it? Well, the spear I felt was in my own heart and it was a convicting experience more than anything else. Convicting like conviction? Con- convicted as a plunderer of the earth, right? Say, say more about that, because not everybody knows this story. You were yeah. you, you're your basic successful industrialist with all that uh, that goes with that in a, in a notoriously nasty industry, uh, carpet making, and you had built a successful company. And one day something happened. A spear yeah. was introduced into your life. <laughs> yeah, the question <laughs> came from from a customer: What's your company doing for the environment? And uh, and we had no answers. You know, that was the really embarrassing thing. And there was this guy who was the uh, the uh, environmental consultant to the Southern California Gas Company in Downey, California, where they were building this green demonstration building. And and our salespeople were pursuing the carpet order for the green demonstration building and kept running into this consultant. And finally he said to our sales manager, the interface just doesn't get it. That got back to me, and so helped me. My answer, my response was, "Interface doesn't get what." <laughs> you know, QED. Rather confirming the consultant's <laughs> idea. Here's <laughs> his point of view, and um, and then this this uh, question that kept coming: "What's your company doing for the environment?" And then uh, a group in our company said, "Look, our salespeople have to have an answer. You know, what are we doing? Let's get us a." task force together and let's see what we're doing by this time in the face is 21 years old it's global now in its scope and let's bring our people from around the world and see what we're doing get some answers and uh, they came to me with the idea of the task force I said great you know go for it and they said well we think you talking to me ought to address this task force and you ought to launch it with an environmental vision and your environmental vision I didn't have an environmental vision. I didn't. I didn't, want, I didn't want to make that speech, that kickoff speech to that task force. And I hemmed the hold. I dragged my feet. They stayed on my case. Finally, I relented. I agreed to speak. The date was set, August 31, 1994. Come the middle of August, I have not a clue as to what to say. I've heard this interface doesn't get it. And responded, the interface doesn't get what? That tells you just exactly where I was. And I could not get beyond we obey the law, you know. That's a comply. But I knew that was not a vision. <laughs> that might be a little tough to sell for what it yeah. is. And I did not have a clue what to say. And, and there I'm sweating. And it's a propitious moment. It's a teachable moment, you might say, in Hawkins' book. Paul Hawkins' book lands on my desk. The Ecology of Commerce. I've never heard of Paul Hawking. I don't know this book. And I picked it up sort of idly, the way you do a new book, and was thumbing through it. And, and, page, and there is this speech that is looming. Yeah, it's looming there. And it's, yeah, it's just a couple of weeks away. And, and here's this, page 19, a chapter heading, The Death of Birth. Whoa, what is that? And I began to read, and I was drawn into the book instantly and learned quickly, of course, The Death of Birth refers to species extinction, species disappearing into extinction, never again to experience the miracle of birth. And that was the point of the spear. And I read on. 
And I came to Hawkins Central Point really fairly quickly, and it was that in three parts, the living systems, the life support systems of the earth are in decline. The biosphere is in decline. This supports all of life on earth, including us. The biggest culprit in this decline is the industrial system. It's the way we make stuff, the take-make-waste industrial system, digging up the earth, converting it to products that end up as waste in landfills or incinerators. This linear take-make-waste industrial system. That was, you know, that was described my company precisely. Sounds familiar. Yeah. And then he goes on to say there's only one institution on earth that is large enough and powerful enough and pervasive enough and wealthy enough to really change all that. And it's the same institution that's doing the damage. The institution of business and industry. Well, that's my institution. And the spear went boom all the way in. And And I was convicted, you know, right there (laughs) as this plunderer of the earth, digging up the earth converting it to products that end up as waste in the landfill 10 or 20 years later. And we've long since forgotten, you know, about making that stuff. There's an old saying that there's nothing like a hanging to concentrate the mind, particularly if it's your hanging. Uh, And in some ways, that's what you're describing with your having to give the speech, but also with respect to your company. But it also seems more generally to be the challenge that we're faced with in in our community, particularly in the industrialized world and the industrializing world. Uh, We're faced with a serious hanging, our own. Mm -hmm. And yet people have been remarkably slow. The people in your industry, the people in your position, have been remarkably slow to, to, to acknowledge what's going on and then to take the kinds of steps that, that, you've, yeah. that you've taken. Yeah. Why is that? I think we're, we're, you know, we're stuck with the normal distribution, that bell-shaped curve. And you know, at one, ex- one end of that, you have the early movers. And behind them, the fast followers. At the other end of the curve is the never movers. Yeah, and the other people, the regulatory system is there. <laughs> to keep prodding along. And in the, in the middle, the, the vast middle ground is, and you don't have mainstream until the vast middle ground moves. And we're in the, still in the early move of fast follower stage. Maybe a few willing followers who are trying to figure it out, but we aren't, we aren't anywhere near you know, mainstream with, huh. with this revolution. One of the leaders of this revolution, we'll come back in a moment talking about the next industrial revolution, that would be revolution, is Ray Anderson, who has graced us with his presence. Be with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Ray Anderson, the great industrialist who is leading the second industrial revolution and has written about it in Confessions of a Radical Industrialist. He is our guest, Bill Russell, I, Paula Gordon. I am pleased to call you Ray. You have become a friend over many years now. It's been interesting to watch this early leader, early adapter, early adopter, to watch you go from ground zero. There just weren't industrialists who were thinking that way, which, of course, is that's one, of, one more of that one person doing what he knew how to do was Paul Hawken writing the book. And then so the the question of, how come not more, is one that I think we all have to really address because it is yet to be mainstream. I would that Mm -hmm. since last we met you, yeah, there's been a lot of progress, but it is not yet mainstream. So it's still a sermon that needs preaching. Yeah, Yeah. I think, you know, the corporations 
I'm still trying to figure out the business model. Does it really work? Can they still meet shareholder requirements and also serve the planet? Our experience is an unequivocal yes. It's a better way to bigger profit, better for the planet, better for the shareholder. The business case has become crystal clear in our experience. And, uh, and you know, that is the, the point of the book, really, is to lift up the example that says, hey, that's a better way. And here it is. And here's how you do it. it there's, a, there's 15 years of blood, sweat, and tears in that book. I was really impressed at how many... I said, oh, is he going to give away trade secrets? Well, sure. You want a secret? Here. <laughs> Here, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That seems to be part of this larger shifting paradigm, yes? Yeah, and at the same time, we, we view the sustainability initiative as competitive advantage. And it is proving to be that in terms of cost being down, not up, because we were lucky enough to stumble on the first face of the mountain, mountain sustainability, the face of waste elimination, and have been saving money from day one by attacking waste. And then the, um, excuse me, I lost my train of thought there. The fact that you're willing to, to oh, the, share the, the, what the, looks the competitive like, advantage. yeah. And then, and then the, uh, you know, the goodwill of the marketplace has been astonishing. The same people who were asking that question 15 years ago, what is your company doing, have embraced the company for what we are obviously trying to do. Our products are the best they've ever been. As our product designers began to understand sustainable design for sustainability, I, I want to say sustainable design, we're not there yet, but design for sustainability, uh, it opened up a wellspring of innovation, ideas that they never would have dreamed of began to emerge uh, that have given direction to our product development effort that we wouldn't have had in any circumstance other than the sustainability initiative. And then the people, our people, are just galvanized around the shared higher purpose. Maslow said it a long time ago, you know, at the top of that pyramid of human needs is this need for self-actualization, which translates into being associated with something bigger than ourselves a higher purpose. So you put those together, cost down products, better people galvanized, motivated, and customers embracing the company. I don't know what else there is that undergirds uh, shareholder value. So, so much for, for, for proprietary. <laughs> so good for the planet and good for the shareholder. That's, the, you know, that's doing well by doing good. That's what that phrase means. So right, so smart. When we talked to you a decade ago, I, I will say candidly, I was skeptical that that you could that you could hold your own in the in the pure economic marketplace, which is which has some um, uh, how to say there's some dishonesty in it, and the pricing mechanisms and the market mechanisms, mm-hmm. the externalities, all the things that that you're very familiar with, uh, and I will say it was just immensely. Uh, I just sort of sat there and giggled. As you went through the numbers in the book uh, mm. of what you have been able to do, the, the the net savings, just the economic payoff of the kinds of things that, that you're talking about, far exceeded anything that I, I would have thought was possible, and I think may have surprised you a little bit. Well, we didn't know going in. We knew it was the right thing to do, but very quickly when we saw the reaction of the marketplace, we knew it was also smart in a strict business sense. 
uh, we set out to eliminate waste. Eliminate waste. Well, we're hardly halfway there, but the savings or the, the cost avoidance are for over $400 million over the years. That you could then spend elsewhere? Yeah, we've, well, we've deployed some of it elsewhere. Some of it's gone to the bottom line. Others, other, you know, a portion of it has gone into R&D and into the capital investments and the process changes, all the things that you needed to do and to, to transform a petro-intensive company into one that is independent of the, of the oil well. Transform. Yeah. That's a big, big word, idea, effort. Transform? Transform, yeah. Yep. This is part Change of, completely. This is part of being a radical industrialist, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, to change the business model completely. In mid-stride, you know, a successful company, close to a billion in sales, to change its business model so completely. And a lot of this, I th- it, 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 it seems to me, uh, just going back and going back, that, that the leadership, the, the unambiguous commitment that you had, and presumably your board was supporting you in this, uh, the... the Frequently, and you write about it. Frequently, the the the, the threat is one of greenwash, uh, of doing just enough to appear to be doing something, uh, and the people out in the field understand that they 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 know when games are being played at headquarters, mm-hmm. and they will just sort of hunker down until this particular fad passes by. In American industry, and I suspect worldwide, is is uh, notorious for fads passing through, and it it seems that part of what you were able to do is just that unambiguous commitment to a, a radical objective uh, and your, your your consistency in supporting that and making it uh, the, the centerpiece of everything the organization did mm-hmm. that made all this possible. Yeah, you, you had the right word, consistent and persistent and patience. You know, there's a sort of a dichotomy there between persistence and patience, but it really does take that, that combination because we didn't get into this mess overnight. We're not going to get out of it overnight. And you have to invent your way out of the mess that you invented your way into. How so do you describe the, whole, the mess? <clears throat> the mess? Well, the mess is that every living system and every life support system of the global biosphere is in decline. Now, picture an economy that can operate without air, without water, without energy, without food, without materials, without climate regulation, without an ultraviolet radiation shield, without pollination, without seed dispersal, without water distribution through the hydrologic cycle, without a carbon cycle, including photosynthesis. Picture an economy operating without those. Well, you have nothing. I think you have have Venus. What you have just described, of course, is the goose that lays all the golden eggs. That's what nature is. And like Jack and the Beanstalk, we learned as children that you shouldn't squeeze the goose to death. But that's exactly what we're doing with nature. Nature's the goose, and we're squeezing the goose to death. And at the end of that road lies suicide. That's very, very clear. And anybody that wants to stop and think about it. But thinking is hard. Well, and facing something that dire. Yeah, I'm going to go to work and not think about it. And to, yeah, and to think that I could do anything about it, or you could do anything about it. Well, okay, 
power of one and one and one and one. It is absolutely, you talk about transformation, it is one mind at a time. You can't dictate how people would think. People think their own thoughts, and in their heart of hearts, you know, they either come to this on their own or they, or they avoid it. And, and, and avoidance is so oftentimes the easy thing to do. But that's where the consistency and the persistence come in. Exactly. You, know, you change the culture, which essentially is how people see the world around them. And once they see the world differently, then the tool sets, they, the insights that they bring to it, uh, can contribute to further, furthering that objective. Absolutely. It's a matter of worldview. What is your view of reality? What is your paradigm for how things really are? And once you come to this understanding that the earth is finite, we treat it as if it's infinite, but it's truly finite. You can see it from space. That's it. There isn't any more. There's the energy input from the sun, and there's the, and there's the sphere, you know, the biosphere. And that's all that we've got you know, to sustain life into the indefinite future. Well, how long is that? Well, it's a long, 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 long time. And <laughs> if we're lucky. <laughs> yeah, if we're lucky, right. And if we, uh, if, if a thousandth generation now has to be born into a livable world, we have to start the change now, or there won't be a livable world. And that's the urgency of the long view. This is, this is Ray Anderson. Let me interrupt now so I don't have to interrupt again for uh, another 12 minutes. <laughs> we are pleased, Bill Russell and I, to be with Ray Anderson. We trust you'll be with us when we come back in a moment. Profits, people, purpose, doing business by respecting the earth. These are the confessions of a radical industrialist, and that is our guest. Ray Anderson. Bill Russell, I think I interrupted you as you were looking for the thousandth well, generation and are we going to have something there's, there's they can live with? to be hopeless, to think that, you know, we've talked a little bit, you know, what can I do? Uh, but there's also just the magnitude of the problem and I, I would like briefly just to step through some of the things that, that you have done I, you know, and I think specifically you know, the first step with the environment was the, the, the damage that was being done. I think that was when we first became aware. Rachel Carson, uh, the Cuyahoga River burns, a whole range of different things. It finally woke us up that, that we had some problems. The first thing is, is to get rid of the waste, and particularly the toxic waste, the things we pump into the air, that we pump into the ground, that we pump into our water. And into uh, our bodies by uh, virtue of all of those things. Yeah. How did you address that? Because you pumped a lot of that stuff out. Oh, Sure. Well, we operate these factories, okay? And there's a supply chain that brings the raw materials to the factory. We produce our products, we make some waste, we make some emissions, we make some effluent, and we ship our product. But whatever comes into our factory will go out in one of those four streams, product, waste, emissions, or effluent. And the, um, so the only way to prevent that's the bad stuff going into the biosphere is to keep it from coming into your factory in the first place which means working upstream with suppliers to create the screens that screen out the bad stuff, the stuff that never should have been taken from the earth in the first place. Some of it was put there over the billions of years, sequestered by nature, cleaning up this biosphere so we'd have a place to live and putting, that, and putting that toxic stuff down there where it belongs so we could have a biosphere up here to live in and we bring it right back into our living room, so to speak by our industrial processes. So, you work upstream, you create the screens, and you cannot imagine how difficult that is because suppliers don't want to tell you. 
what's in their products because oftentimes they themselves don't know because their suppliers haven't told them. And so you chase this daisy chain back all the way to the mine and to the oil well and you finally figure out what's coming into your factory and you say no more of that. And then you have to find the substitutes. You have to end up with a product that performs and meets all the, t- all the conventional tests of the market and also has this added advantage of no toxics. Very hard to do, and over the period of years, we managed to do that and to clean up the the inputs to the factory so that what's going out is harmless to the biosphere, and that's the second face of the mountain, really. There is this sense. Excuse me. Well, there are two <coughs> sort of symbols, metaphors, which is the, the the pipe going out, the affluent, and the smokestack going up. Yeah. Uh, how many of those were you able to get rid of? Well, we've we've we're rid of rid of a third of our smokestacks, 70% of our effluent pipes, uh, simply by changing processes in the factory and by changing the stuff coming into the factory through the supply chain. It's a combination of those two things. Some of the things that were coming in, you say that your suppliers didn't know. Maybe they didn't want to know. Could be. Yeah, there's a lot of denial, you know. (laughs) All through the industry, which is you know coming back to why aren't more companies doing this more quickly is again denials at work. It's uh, garden variety. It's too hard to think about. Can't be true. Uh, so I'm moving on. There is this. <laughs> oh, I'm not moving on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more I'm, to the I'm point. standing pat. You know, <laughs> I'm standing pat in the status quo, and the, the status quo is an opiate. It, it an really opiate. dulls our minds and our vision of what's going on around us. But it, you, you point out, and it seems to be an important part of this, if they sit still and the world keeps moving, then they'll be out of business. Yeah, yeah. Which is yeah. a good thing. It, it is, it's almost as if the very business of business is denied when you don't look at these crushingly immediate challenges. Well, yeah, I put the blame squarely on Milton Friedman. And his mantra, business makes a business exists to make a profit. Well, it's the blind pursuit of profits that have created the financial crisis that the, the whole world economy is in right now. And it's also that blind pursuit of profits that's the greatest threat to the, to the biosphere and to our very existence on Earth. This blind pursuit of profits without regard to the to the consequences, the externalities particularly. And it's not that you're against profit. Oh, no. I'm for honest profit. Honest, you know, and I mean that in the sense of uh, not at the expense of, our, of the earth and not at the expense of future generations. I prefer to make our profits at the expense of the inefficient adapter, the competitor who just doesn't get it. And as market there, shares... There's, there's, a, there's an echo here. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Doesn't get what? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't get the fact that the earth is finite as a source and as a sink, and the consequences of our actions are important, and we need to be thinking about those consequences over the really long term. And business does not make, does not exist to make a profit. Business makes a profit to exist, and it must surely exist for some higher purpose. I don't know a CEO that really expects to stand before her or his maker someday and talk about shareholder value. 
I think that conversation is going to be on other subjects. <laughs> hmm, yeah. yeah. Let me tell you, God, about this great deal I've made. You know, no, I don't think so. All right, all the wonderful things. In addition to Friedman, though, you, you also, and this is one of the problems of market fundamentalists and of economics, you talk about the, the standard rhetoric that, you know, the... the they're not $20 bills laying all over the sidewalk. Yeah. If there were, people would be picking up $20 bills. And yet you have, you have found... They would already have been picked up. Yeah. It, it can't be any there because they already would have because been Because they are market sufficient. And yeah. Not so. Uh, not so. And, and your experience is, is, and I think this is as much as anything, is the important lesson of that. We are looking at not $20 bills. We're looking at $1,000 bills scattered all over the place Absolutely. and walking right past them. Absolutely. How can that be? <laughs> How can that be? There's a, there's a mental model you know, exists in every person's head of how things are. And the, the business person has, a, has her or his own mental model too. And if those mental models were shaped by the economics that they studied in college, they have a flawed view of reality. <laughs> Amen. The first lesson of Economics 101, the first lesson of the first day, talks about the basic economic problem that drives all of economic progress. And this is the gap between what we have and what we want. Not need, want. And it's that gap that the economist tells us we can never close human nature being what it is. Whatever we have, we will always want more. Well, there's a little bit of a problem for about 4 billion people around the earth with that concept that we in the West are pursuing what we want as opposed to what we need. And they don't have the proverbial pot. So there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a vast injustice at the very least in this concept of economics and the basic economic problem. And it's the, the blind pursuit of creating stuff that people want that is at the heart of the industrial system. And there's a flawed heart of the system. So what happens in a world when you pursue what people need rather than want? Yeah. Well, you get a reordering of priorities. And, uh, and you begin to realize that uh, maybe happiness fits into this equation somewhere. What a concept. Yeah, what a concept. How about a little more happiness with a little less stuff? And uh, you know, and I think perhaps that's one of the things that's, that's happening right now in the economic crisis in which the the world finds itself. People are reordering priorities. That whether we'll get far enough, you know, to change the system this time around, I doubt. It'll take some more crises, but eventually, humankind will, through the you know this enlightened self-interest, will come to its senses. And we will uh, we'll change this, this whole Or be system. driven to its senses. I'm sitting here kind of choked up because the air is toxic in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Well, it isn't, do I like or not like toxins in the air and microparticulates, which is the reason that I'm all choked up. It's, a- am I going to be able to breathe? Are my children going to be able to breathe? Will the trees be able to live? So it isn't just, well, wouldn't it be nice? This is real stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And where does that fit in the business model? Yeah. Yeah, it's, well, it's an externality to the business world today. I mean, that's your problem, not theirs. Even though 
they caused it. It's, it's an externality. And you can be certain there's nothing built into their cost structure to cover your medical cost. That's your problem. Or the fact that somebody's kid has had an asthma attack and so they miss work and they, the, there's sort of a l- lack of what you call connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those dots are back to all those things in decline, aren't they? Absolutely. That's the fundamental problem. That we have a biosphere in decline, and we have an industrial system that's the prime cause of that. You also talk about honest markets as mm-hmm. opposed to the markets that we yeah. inhabit now. Mm-hmm. And honest markets, presumably, at least as a first pass through, would internalize all those externalized costs. And until we do that, talking about markets is uh, you know self-justification or rationalization, but really is not a... Um, an honest representation of what's really going on in, right. in the marketplace. Everything else aside, just just in terms of the marketplace. Right. I spent those years on the President's Council for Sustainable Development during the Clinton years, and uh, and there was the the PCSD President's Council during the first Clinton term, and then renewed for the second Clinton term. I joined it in the the second term, uh, but the people working on that issue in the first term, how to visualize a sustainable America, uh, came down to one fundamental bedrock principle. If you're going to change the, if you're going to change America and move towards a sustainable America, you must figure out how to get the prices right. So the prices reflect full cost, including the externalities. And then and only then will you have an honest marketplace that can allocate resources in a, in a truly intelligent way. But without internalizing the externalities, if the oil companies get to uh, shed the, the responsibility for protecting the oil in the Middle East and put that on the taxpayer through the military, yeah, and not, and not reflected in the price of a barrel of oil, we will never get... Uh, a true competition among between oil and the other renewable sources of energy. Oil will always have this built-in subsidy, this built-in advantage, and until we level that playing field, uh, oil will have this unfair advantage in in the energy field. So, get the prices right, and let an honest market work. We've never had that, not in the history of the of the world, have we truly had an honest market. Which is why lobbyists are so popular. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems that there's another perspective on essentially the same thing, which is, and it's again why your your, your example is so important is the stories we tell. Mm-hmm. The stories we tell are essentially our culture. It affects what we believe, what we experience, how we mm. see the world around us. And as long as we believe economics 101, <laughs> and as long as we believe that it's okay to externalize. Uh, you know, the cost of protecting oil wells in, say, Iraq, and all the things that we externalize, uh, all the things, um, we're, we're, we're not telling honest stories, the stories that actually reflect the way the world works. Uh, and the way in the world, we, don't, we can't vote on the laws of, of physics. We, don't, we can't decide today we're, gonna, we're not going to have gravity because it's inconvenient. Yeah. yeah. And it seems to me that, that part of what is so important and what you're able to do in your organization, but also what you're, you're doing as an example, is changing the available stories. 
the things that are possible. We're yeah. going to have more of those stories from Ray Anderson in just a moment. So again, so as not to interrupt you too, <laughs> we'll be back in just a moment with Ray Anderson, whom we are privileged to have joined us in conversation. Be with us. Ray Anderson has joined us, we being Bill Russell, I, Paula Gordon, in conversation with people at the leading edge over many years now, and we met many years ago as one of those people at the leading edge. The story you were telling then was similar to the story you're telling now and different. Because now, 15 years after you began this journey, you really have demonstrable uh bottom line reporting back that your good idea is a profitable idea in both moral and economic terms. Isn't adding that moral part to the economy part of Economics 202? (laughs) Probably so, but most people haven't got to that lesson yet. In a way, we're writing the lesson, I guess. Uh, Not to be presumptuous here, but we're plowing new ground. I mean, we're going where I don't know anyone else has tread. And and it's it's amazingly uh, thrilling, frankly, and fulfilling, as well as challenging, of course. But, Paula, we, we created a plan in 1995 to climb Mount Sustainability, the seven faces of the mountain. And we studied that mountain for fully a year to figure it out. And with the help of a lot of really good people, including Paul Hawking, who wrote the book, and, and the environmental consultant for the Southern California Gas Company, who said, Underface doesn't get it. You know, he was on our advisory team, still is, John Picard. And we, we created the plan to climb the seven faces of the mountain, and that plan is still the plan. It has proven to be you know, a good plan. And a good metaphor, a good vision. You know, you draw that mountain, the top of the mountain, that's where we're going. That point symbolizing zero footprint, zero environmental impact. And the seven faces. And today, uh, we'd say there's an eighth face as well. You know, the, the mountain is not a static mountain. It does evolve. It's, it's, it's something of a moving target. But we realize there's an eighth face. And maybe there's a ninth one that we haven't recognized yet. The eighth face has to do with social equity. By the way, you know, a stronger commitment to um, to social responsibility as well as environmental and economic responsibility. And they all and, fit together. This is the same they mountain. Fit, they all fit together. Absolutely, it's the same mountain. Uh, and the, what's different today from 15 years ago is that we're well up that mountain today, and the uh, the vision is proving to be realizable. It's not some pie in the sky thing that is totally impossible, though we, a lot of people thought so early on, but it's proven to be feasible. We're better than 60% of the way from the base of the mountain to the top of the mountain. We started at the base, and the, uh, and the rewards have been amazing in the marketplace as well as uh, you know, in our feel-good side of ourselves. But in the marketplace, we've won market share without a doubt. And we have survived two really serious recessions in our industry. The one that lasted from 2001 to 2004 was at the time the longest and the deepest recession in our industry's history. We came through that with increased market share. And now we're in another one, and we are coming through it 
with increased market share, proving the value of the business model, proving you know, the value of, of, of doing well by doing good. Things like you started 15 years ago when oil was relatively cheap, oil gets expensive, you've cut the cost of, you, you use less oil, all of these things, including yep. radical innovation tech technologically that True. when yeah. when you begin to recycle the foundation of what you do which was it, the way you tell it it sounded more or less inconceivable at the beginning well the technology didn't exist you know when we began we, we only had this sort of vague vision of what what we had to do but how to do it was a total mystery and uh, it took the inventions of, of really smart people not just our people too we had to scour the world for the inventions that would take us, you know, up that up that mountain. And the uh, all, in, all seven, now hmm. eight, maybe nine faces at a time. Oh, you yeah. don't get to pick, do you? Right. Each one, each one is its own challenge, and and each one has to be climbed clear to the peak. Uh, and simultaneously. And simultaneously. And right. So there's a lot going on. You get. <laughs> A lot of moving parts, yeah. Well, you need a big company. <laughs> yeah, and with a pretty good-sized company at that, yeah. I want to talk big company. briefly about Kyoto, because Kyoto in this mm-hmm. country has had a terrible reputation. The Senate just bailed <coughs> on it uh, before we even had a chance to, to talk about it. Kyoto was basically arguing that we should cut our greenhouse emissions by 7%. Seven, that would be seven. 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 seven, seven five plus two. Uh, which, you know, by and large, everybody agreed would destroy the economy. Uh, I think, I, I, I'm doing this from a failing memory, but <laughs> you, you say, I think, in this book somewhere, that something like 90-plus percent of all the energy we use in producing things uh, is wasted, which yeah. suggests to me that 7% is almost trivial. If we had again had the commitment and the yeah. persistence uh, to, to yeah. follow through, yeah, the the, the figure that's, that that uh, that I uh, focus on is the throughput of the industrial system. I'm talking about not not talking about my plant, but the whole ball of wax, the whole industrial system, the throughput, the metabolism, if you will, of the industrial system. Only about three percent of that throughput has any value six months later. Three percent. Your laptop computer, for example, weighs what, seven, eight, nine pounds? Mm-hmm. Probably 40,000 pounds of stuff was processed to distill your, your seven, eight, or nine pounds uh, of working parts. <clears throat> so you've left 99.9% of the stuff, you know, in a waste pile somewhere. Tailings at the mine, energy that went out the smokestack uh, in a zillion places, this waste in the system, um, so when you look at you look at where we are, that's the starting place. It ought to be really very very easy to cut that waste in half. That looks like opportunity every time. It's all expensive. I mean, this, it's all this, money. This is- yeah, it's money and it's pollution and it's 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 bad in every respect. And yet, our our system somehow says, well, that's normal. Well, it's very abnormal if you stop and think about it. Who would want to run a waste-making machine? That costs mm. you money. <laughs> yeah, it's weird that we would, you know, we would accept anything like that. It's sort of like all that money that's on the road, except instead of it being lay, laying on the street, it's like we're reaching into our pockets. 
and, and, and putting that. Let's there. see. I'm going to pay to be wasteful. You tell uh, the story <laughs> in, in this, in precisely this, uh, this context about a methane problem near one of your factories, yeah. not as close as you would like, probably near one of your factories, and how that alone could have addressed. I mean, if people had done what you did, yeah. your company did, uh, we could have met the Kyoto uh, protocols simply out of uh, using methane. Uh, to generate out of profit to everyone and methane is yeah. real bad for the mm-hmm. atmosphere 21 times as bad as carbon dioxide as a global warming gas uh, huge opportunity uh, to not only reduce the greenhouse gases but to make a buck we worked with the city of LaGrange that would be LaGrange Georgia LaGrange Georgia they harnessed the, uh, you know, they spent the $3 million in capital cost to capture the methane and pipe it nine miles to our factory. We invested $50,000 in a couple of boiler modifications to be able to substitute the methane for the present natural gas. We bought that energy from the city, are buying it today at 30% less than the cost of natural gas. The city is reaping a huge financial return on that $3 million investment over the life of the landfill, which is calculated to be something like 40 years. The city will recoup on the order of $35 million at present value from that $3 million investment. The earth is spared greenhouse gas emissions that are 21 times as bad as carbon dioxide. And... Interface is, is getting credit for the offset. It's 21 times 6% of our factory's energy. I think something in that neighborhood. That's over 100% of our energy uh, as an offset, a greenhouse gas offset. And the city has more landfill because you take the methane out, it goes down. Exactly. <laughs> the city is postponing their, their, their next landfill, they think, for maybe 15 years by doing this. So it's been win, 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 win. And the only loser is the natural gas supplier who lost a little bit of business but has that, he, he, he can say he's got more left in the ground than he had, <laughs> than he would have had. And <laughs> you're selling it to your competition. I love that part. Oh, the gas, oh, the excess gas <laughs> yeah. is going to a competitor across town, yeah. This also raises, in that same context, methane, among its other, in addition to being a nasty greenhouse gas, also smells bad. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. One of the problems was... The nearby African-American community is very appreciative, by the way, of this project. Exactly, but that brings up a... a an area that I seems to me in some ways to be the most challenging and in some ways the most promising part of what you're doing, which is the notion, call it social sustainability. I read that and I think, I don't know what that means. Yeah. And I, you know, and I thought about it and I read your book and I still am a little fuzzy on, on what that means. And it seems to me that that, that is as much as anything, and we've got our hands around the technical pieces conceptually, I mean, we can yeah. see it. Yeah. And and we can demonstrate it. We can, we can put it on charts. And you have. And you've got. I mean, you've got the data. When we start talking about social sustainability, it seems to me we're off into a, a new wonderland. Tell us oh, about social sustainability. It is so big that it's hard to get one's mind around it. Really, it has so many facets, so many elements, and you can think of another one when you think you've thought of them all. There's still more. <laughs> there's more. There's more. There's more. The uh, the the simplification of the other side of complexity you understand that concept as opposed to simplification of this side of complexity Oliver Wendell Holmes said I wouldn't give you a fig 
for simplification this side of complexity, but I give you my arm for simplification of the other side of complexity. Simplification of the other side of complexity, the whole social equity ball of wax boils down to making fair and efficient use of resources to meet all human needs. Not wants, but needs. All human needs. Fair and efficient. Fair and efficient use of resources to meet all human needs. This is the fourth principle of the natural step. Carl Henry had it right, you know, 20 years ago. This has to do with justice, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that just right dead center of what... It's justice, it's it's ethics, it's morality, it is uh, the golden rule. And it's life on earth. And of course, yeah. And And most certainly it's quality of life on earth. And it's a work in progress. For four billion people who are living in abject poverty today... One of the things that really struck me when when we come back, I'll interrupt me this time, you had a person early on who said, you know, isn't it kind of funny we call our factories plants? (laughs) And when we come back, we'll talk about plants, we'll talk about interface, we'll be talking with the great Ray Anderson. Be with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back. We are pleased that Ray Anderson has joined us in conversation. The conversation being Bill Russell, I, Paula Gordon, Ray Anderson. Conversations with people at the leading edge. This guy who said somewhat offhandedly to you, why do we call our factories plants? Leads to a whole way of thinking about how you do business, doesn't it? Yeah, it surely does. It's a field of biomimicry. Janine Benyus invented the word, so far as I know. She wrote the book with that title, and she surveyed the field to find out what was going on where people were looking to nature for inspiration to solve real uh, industrial problems. Um, and the, uh, such questions arose as, yeah, how does the abalone do it? <laughs> the abalone <laughs> makes a ceramic that's tougher than any man-made ceramic does it out of readily abundant minerals and seawater at 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Our best ceramics are made at 4,000 degrees, you know, and, uh, and the abalone does it better. How does a spider do it? How does a spider create a textile fiber that is five times stronger than Kevlar, which is the best man-made fiber for toughness and strength there is? It makes bulletproof vests. How does a, how does a spider do it? out of bugs at body temperature when Kevlar requires boiling sulfuric acid. Yeah. So you, you get these interesting questions and you look to nature for the answers and you find nature's design principles and you apply them to real industrial processes, not by domesticating nature, but by learning from nature, nature's principles and trans, translating them into you know, real problem solving um, Real problem solving. The, um, you know, how does the lotus leaf clean itself? Well, it turns out there's a very micro structure in the surface of the lotus leaf, which if you emulate it in paint, you get a self-cleaning wall that uh, where the, the, the dirt balls up and the little drops of water and the whole thing self-cleans. It's the texture of the surface learned from studying the lotus leaf. What does that have to do with making carpets? Well, in our instance, our head of design, David Oakey, read the book. It moved him in much the same way that Paul Hawkins' book moved me. 
And one day he said to his design team, go into the forest and see how nature designs floor coverings. And don't come back with leaf designs. <laughs> he says, come back with nature's design principles. So the, the design team spent a day studying the forest floor and the stream beds and finally dawned on them, you know, there's no two things alike here. No two sticks, no two stones, no two leaves, no two anything, no two square feet of the forest floor are identical. And yet it all blends together into a very harmonious whole, very pleasant. So they came back to the design studio, designed a carpet tile, modular carpet, such that the face designs of no two modules, no two tiles are the same. All are similar, they all belong together, you know, but no two are alike and introduced that product into the marketplace with the name entropy. That's a scientific term associated with disorder. And it, in a year and a half, it went to the top of the bestseller list faster than any other product ever had in the company's history. And as we began to understand the popularity of entropy, it turns out in the production process is almost no off quality. The inspectors cannot find defects <laughs> among this deliberate <laughs> imperfection of no two tiles alike. The installer gets to install the tiles very quickly because he doesn't have to take the extra time to get the pile nap all running in the same direction. He just puts the tiles down at randomly, and the more random, the better. So he takes them out of the box the way they come and installs them. He can breeze through the installation. The user can now even replace an individual damaged tile when it's a spill or damage, whatever without creating the sore thumb effect that so typically comes when everything is absolutely uniform and you put the new amongst the old, the new stands out like a sore thumb, but it's not so with entropy. The new blends in. There are no longer issues of dye lots. One dye lot merges with another indistinguishably, which means you don't have to have the extra tiles on the shelf waiting to be used, uh, money tied up in inventory, waiting to be used on the floor. So advantage after advantage after advantage emerged, and and then we learned, there's a speaker on the environmental speaking circuit who begins every speech by having her audience close their eyes and visualize in their mind's eye their perfect comfort zone, that perfect place of peace and repose and tranquility, creativity, comfort. She lets them think about it, and then she says, now, Lift your hand high if you're somewhere outdoors. I have done it over 500 times around the world. And 95% of the hands go up. It is amazing. We, and it's true everywhere on earth. We humans gravitate to nature subconsciously for that ideal comfort zone. And somehow I think entropy brings outdoors indoors in a subliminal way. And that's its real appeal. So there's real power in biomimicry. And by the way, this, this quality also has a, a name, biophilia, mm-hmm. coined by the great Harvard biologist Ed Wilson. Mm-hmm. This affinity that we have for nature. Because we are of it. We, it isn't other. Right. Exactly. This world does not belong to us. We belong to it. It seems, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about is... is uh, can be generalized. It, uh, these are general principles that you've, you've developed, uh, the, the, the multiple sides of the mountain. Well, when you talk about the, you know, the plant, uh, and Janine wrote this book, and in the last chapter she describes the industrial company that is modeled after nature. 
And she describes interface without ever having met or even known of anyone at interface when she sat down and wrote the chapter. But it describes it describes the, the sustainable company that's modeled after nature. What does that mean? Well, nature runs on sunlight. Nature recycles everything. In waste, there is, in nature, there's no waste. One organism's waste is another organism's food. So there are the cycles of nature uh, are using everything, and nature's beautiful, and nature is very resource efficient. So you you say, well, how are you going to create an industrial company that's sustainable? Well, you just take a look at nature and do it the way nature does it. Renewable energy, renewable materials, recycle everything, beautiful products, resource-efficient production. And it's profitable. And it's profitable. It is a better way to bigger profits. <laughs> As usual, you're ahead of me. Um, I, I was, I was going to ask, um, we're, we're restoring a place in Kimberley, British Columbia, uh, renovating it as greenly as we know how. And one of the appealing things about the community is they've committed to being the greenest city in North America, which is a fairly ambitious uh, uh, task. At least some of the people there. I'm not sure the entire well, city is quite there a, yet, but it's sort of like the industrial process. We haven't had a vote yet. Um, <laughs> and in precisely the, the manner you're talking about, what would, what would you say to somebody who, in, in their in their hearts, in their souls, in their spirits, have made that commitment as a community. You know, how do they get from an you know an okay place to being among the greenest cities in the world? Yeah. Well, I'm not an expert in you know in city planning. But you weren't an expert in sustainable carpets well, either. Well, yeah, but I spent a lot of time learning that one, and I haven't spent the time to learn <laughs> what you're years. talking about. But I would, I would say, you know, just marrying my views with what you've just described, I don't think you'll find a, a sustainable community without a sustainable industrial base. So I bring you back to the end of my ballpark, the industrial operations, you know, that make up the, the economic foundation of the community. Uh, you won't have a sustainable city until those industries are operating sustainably. And then, of course, the city has its own issues to deal with. Uh, it has its own footprint, its own carbon footprint to deal with, for example. And it has all of the issues of uh, the political issues of subsidies and rewards and punishments and all the rest that will create the, the right incentives for not only its populace, but also its industrial base. So you've got a very complex thing there to get it all together and make it all work. Uh, and at the same time, that, that list you ran through that Janine describes uh, you know, what, a, what an industry would look like, I was, I was sitting there listening to you tick that list off, and it, it precisely applies to, to, yeah. uh, to yeah. the community. That, that is, it that applies defines, across the board. Nature defines sustainability for us. We don't have to go hunting for definitions. How <laughs> oh, convenient. What we do have to do is open our eyes. Exactly. Well, and learn from things that have been learned, including your wonderful confessions of a radical industrialist. Profits, people, purpose. That sounds like worth getting up in the morning for, doesn't it? Yeah. It's the idea. <laughs> you, you wrote the prologue 
as we were falling off the, you know, just jumped off the cliff. Uh, you wrote the epilogue as we were midway down the side of the cliff, you know, plus or minus uh, 30 or 40 percent. It seems to me that in, in addition to the, the economic and ecological disasters, this, this disruption is a tremendous opportunity to make some of the kinds of changes that you've been talking about that makes sense in the abstract. I don't know how to make that tangible. Do you, have you been able to get a sense of how do you exploit this opportunity, uh, this challenge? The calamity. This calamity, this disruption, this discontinuity, which is really what's going on, mm-hmm. to begin to drive more generally uh, the kinds of changes that, that, that you and I think a lot of people will begin to see as important. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. In fact, I'm pretty sure I don't. The uh, the I, and I don't want to stray outside my area of competence. Okay, I don't I don't have solutions for the world at large, but I do have the example that we're creating at Interface, and and it, it is in fact proven to be a better way. And the um, the, the the continuing objective that we have is to demonstrate the better business model. Hold up the example so that the toughest-minded CEO there is will look at this and say, hey, these guys have something. You know, this, let's go see what they're doing and let's see if, if, anything, that, if anything they're doing applies to us. Um, yeah, when Jeffrey Immelt commits General Electric to doubling its R&D from $750 million a year to a billion and a half to, in the clean technology area, with the expectation of doubling its revenues from $10 billion to $20 billion in the sale of those clean technologies, you know there's not an altruistic thought in it. He's doing it because his customers are demanding it. His customers are creating the demand. He's responding to create the supply. And this is the way business evolves. It's supply and demand co-evolving you know, to a higher and higher level. As always, Ray Anderson, you inspire, you inform, and you delight. Thank you so much for Thank being you, with Paula. us. Bill, it's a real pleasure to be with you, and you know that. Yeah. Ray Anderson has had the courage, the will, and the persistence to demonstrate that one can indeed do well by doing good. He and his company have shown that imagination, hard work, and the willingness to change can make a business both profitable and sustainable. Bless him for showing the way. I'm Paula Gordon. I wish you well.